Good morning, Christ Prez. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus makes these I am statements, like I am the bread of life or I am the light of the world. And these flesh out his understanding of who he is and what he's come to do. And that's what we're wrestling with in this series. You know, there's no shortage of opinions about Jesus, but what was his opinion of himself? We're asking, who is Jesus according to Jesus? Last week, we looked at Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. And today we come to the second I am statement. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let's get at this by looking at the context for this claim, the claim itself, and then the call. Okay, the context, the claim, and the call. So first, the context. When and where Jesus makes his claim to be the light of the world matters. So what's the context? Well, you can't really see it in our little passage, but if you go back, back to the beginning of chapter 7, John tells us that the Feast of Booths was at hand. And then in verse 37 of chapter 7, we're told that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, the earliest copies of John's gospel we have don't include this amazing story of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, It looks like John's original plan was to have uh, chapter 8, verse 12, where our passage begins, follow immediately after the end of chapter 7. And in that case, uh, this puts us right at the very end of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's also called. So what's the significance of that? Well, the Feast of Booths was one of three major feasts that the Jews living in and around Jerusalem were obligated to attend. The other two were the Passover and Pentecost. Uh, The Feast of Booths is an eight-day celebration held in the fall, early to mid-October, and it's meant to celebrate God's gracious provision during Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. You remember his provision there with the manna and then the water from the rock and then the pillar of fire that led them. So during the festival, worshipers lived in little huts or booths or tents, and they remembered that God himself during that time chose to live among the people in a tent that they called the tabernacle, and hence the name for the festival, the festival of booths or the feast of uh, tabernacles. So during the feast, there was this light ceremony called the illumination of the temple, which took place in the part of the temple called the court of women. And every night of the feast, they would light this huge candelabra that held a number of giant lamps. I mean, so large that um, the light from the temple uh, would flood into the rest of the city. And then it was party time. I mean, the people would celebrate with music and singing and dancing. This was the most joyous of Israel's celebrations. So they would participate in this ceremony of light every night of the feast. But this is the last night. This is the night uh, when everything is packed up and put away until next year. You know, our family just this past week took down our Christmas tree, took down all the decorations. And it's always sad to do that. You know, our home becomes less festive, less full of joyful light. Well, imagine the sadness for God's people. You know, the feast would end. The lights were out until next year. And now in the temple court, in the cold darkness, they'd remember, I mean, they would have to remember that the light of God's glorious presence really hadn't been seen for centuries. They had the reminder of God's glorious presence in the temple and in the candelabra, but they lacked the experience of it. God had been silent for hundreds of years. You know, the prophet Ezekiel had actually declared that God's glory had gone. 
And that's when Jesus gets up and he goes over and he stands in front of the cold, darkened candelabra and he says, I am the light of the world. So that's the context. Now, let's look at this claim. I am the light of the world. With the context in mind, we can see that the claim becomes rather astounding. Jesus is saying, I am the glory light, the true light, the very glory of God. He's saying, the pillar of fire leading you through the wilderness was just a pale reflection of me. This candelabra, which goes on and off year after year, is just a meager signpost. The light and joy it brings are merely foretastes of the fullness of light and life and love and joy you can have in me. He's saying, you've seen this light piercing the darkness these seven nights of the festival, but now the party's over. But I am the true light that never goes out. Do you see what a remarkable claim this is? I am the light of the world. See, he doesn't say he's a light. He's not one among many lights. He says he's the singular light and not just a light for some people here and there. He's light for the whole world. So what is he saying by saying this? Well, think about light. You know, light is the source of life. Jesus is saying, I'm the ultimate source of life. He's saying, I'm the one, the only one who can really give you real, true, everlasting life. You know, you can think of the metaphor of the sun. Without sunlight, what happens? Death. I mean, it's that simple. Every living thing needs light uh, to live. We need light for life. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. So light is a source of life. It's also a source of truth. I mean, have you ever gone walking in the woods at night? It helps to have a flashlight. A flashlight helps you to know what's on the trail in front of you. It helps you to see reality as it is. Without light, we walk around bumping into things and tripping over unseen obstacles. We end up hurting ourselves and others. Without light, we live with a basic kind of disorientation and confusion and blindness and fear. Jesus is saying, I am the one who shows you reality as it truly is. Now, in what way? Well, first, he shows us the truth about God. We see this explicitly in our passage. Jesus says that if we know him, we know the Father also. I mean, to be connected to this person, Jesus, is to be connected to none other than God himself. To know Jesus is to know God. See, he's not saying that there's no other prophet or faith or philosophy or science that can help us know truth. Of course not. But he's saying that they are like moons to the sun. They reflect glory, but here is glory himself. You know, the founder of other religions all basically insisted that they were moons. They were pointing away from themselves to the divine glory as best as they could grasp it. Jesus comes along and has the audacity to say, I'm the sun, I'm the light of the world, I'm not a reflection of the glory, I am the glory. Family, do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. God is exactly like Jesus. So Jesus reveals the truth of God. He also shows us what it means uh, to be truly human. He, he reveals the truth about true humanity. Jesus is the one true human being, the one true human being. He's the one who shows us the life that we were meant for, a life of doing the Father's will, a life of perfect love, 
He lives his whole life by faith. He trusts the Father. He doesn't close himself off to God's grace. He doesn't reject God's love. And he loves and he serves others. I mean, clearly he has a high opinion of himself. He claims to be the bread of life and the light of the world, but his actions are completely other-oriented. He's always moving toward people who are lost and lonely and hurting and helpless. He shows us what Adam was meant to be and what Israel was meant to be and what you and I are meant to be. People who love others with humble, self-giving love. And at the same time, by showing us what it means to be truly human, he also exposes the dark truth of our human condition. I mean, Jesus exposes that what is wrong with the world is not simply greed or racism or sexism or violence or injustice. It's not nationalism or militarism. It's not addiction or abuse. I mean, these are all symptoms of the problem, but the problem is deeper and darker. As one writer puts it, the problem according to the light of the world is that we come in bondage to sin. We're held hostage by the power of evil and we live in the grip of death. And what makes it worse is that the bondage blinds us so that we do not see the nature of our true condition. Close quote. See, the temptation, of course, is always to think that the darkness is something that plagues other people, but that we're free from. The temptation is to say the problem is them, not me. I've been reading Desmond Tutu's account of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's titled No Future Without Forgiveness. And in it, he recounts some of the atrocities that were perpetrated under South Africa's apartheid. He shares brutal and graphic testimonies of horrendous acts of violence that were committed. And then after sharing many of these um, eyewitness testimonies and, and personal confessions, he writes this, This and more was the kind of testimony that devastatingly made me realize that there is an awful depth of depravity to which we all could sink, that we possess uh, an extraordinary capacity for evil. This applies to all of us. There is no room for gloating or arrogant finger-pointing. We have supplied God with enough evidence, if God had needed it, to, to want to dispatch us all, to wipe the slate clean. But it is important to note that those guilty of these abuses were quite ordinary folk. They did not grow horns on their foreheads or have tails hidden in their trousers. They looked just like you and me. They are, to all intents and purposes, normal people like you and me. Close quote. It's a sobering reminder that the darkness isn't someone else's problem. It's our problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. And it's not a problem we can really easily fix. I mean, we can try to treat the symptoms, but we can't cure the disease. We're actually powerless against it. I mean, Dead people can't make themselves live. Blind people can't make themselves see. We need a savior. We need the light of life, the light of the world. We need Jesus Christ. And so last, Jesus extends an extraordinary call to follow him. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. That's how 
universal and inclusive he is, but at the same time, this promise he gives is a promise only to those who enter into relationship with him, who follow him, who stay in his light, just as Israel followed the pillar of fire through the darkness of the wilderness. C.S. Lewis once wrote a wonderful little essay called Meditation on a Tool Shed, Meditation in a Tool Shed. And in it, he reflects on the difference between looking at something in a detached and scientific kind of way and looking along something in a personal, uh, experiential, existential kind of way. He writes this. He says, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, the beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside and beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Close quote. It's such a simple insight, but really a profound insight. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are two very different experiences. You know, Jesus says he's the light of the world. It's not enough just to look at him. You've got to step into the light. You've got to put yourself in the beam. I mean, that's the call. That's the invitation. I mean, what's involved in this call to follow Jesus, this call to, to get into the light, to, to look along the beam? Well, first, let me, just, let me just tease out some of the implications. First, it's a call to personal integrity. Listen to Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes this, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I mean, it's a call to stop, um, to stop living one way at night and another way in the day, to stop living in secret. It's, it's an invitation to come out of hiding. You know, if it's true that God has rescued us from sin and evil, it makes no sense to keep on living in it. We can't keep living in the darkness. We can't be one person in the dark and another person in the light. And so we respond to the call of Jesus by following him with integrity. Here's a second implication. It's a call to love the people who are following Jesus with you. When you step into the light, you start to love the others who have stepped into the light. Listen to these words from 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Remember, family, love is at the center of the center of everything. I mean, the surest sign that we are in the light is that we love one another. That's it. 
I mean, John is talking about love for the church, for our brothers and sisters in the Christian community, in Christ. It's certainly not always easy to love one another. I mean, sometimes we can be uh, annoying and irritating and difficult. Sometimes we do great harm to each other. But one of the ways that we live in the light is by committing to love each other. And then third, it's also a call to love the people who aren't following Jesus with you. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're called to be a community that does good works to the glory of God. You know, it's so good and important to love each other. That's part of what it means to live in the light. But if we only love each other, how will the world ever know? See, we're called to let our light shine before others. And, and one of the ways we do that is simply by loving those who aren't following Jesus. Remember, the scope of God's saving purposes is so big I mean, he, he has set his sights on saving the world. In Isaiah, God says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back uh, the, those preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, Jesus isn't a parochial deity. He's for everyone. And the way the light comes to the world, amazingly, is through ordinary people like you and me who live in the light and who follow the light. Well, last, look at this table, or if you're at home and you have the elements, the, the bread and the, and the wine or the bread and the juice, would you look at those now? I mean, right now you can see the bread, you can see the cup, you're looking at the beam, but in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to look along the beam, to get into it, to get it into us, to participate in the reality instead of just thinking about it and talking about it. The one who is the bread of life is the same one who is the light of the world. He's the one who offers himself to you here without reserve. And the invitation is to receive the light, to embrace the light of the world. Here is the one who shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome him. And so we remember that at the end of his life, when Jesus was on the cross and the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Remember that on the cross, Jesus faced the ultimate darkness so that we can live in the light. On the cross, darkness did its absolute worst the darkness of sin and evil and death united in opposition to the light. And I bet that that unholy trinity of darkness thought it had won, thought it had overcome the light, but the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it. The risen Christ still shines. Get into the beam, receive him, follow him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.